Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Raphael Baer and Caroline Crampton about whether Labour are really bashing the rich. Our editor Jason Cowley talks to George and David Kiniston about their cover stories on private schools and social mobility. And I talk to feminist campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez about a change to the stalking laws. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and our web editor, Caroline Crampton, to talk about Labour and the economy in the wake of the 50p um, tax rate. So, Raph, how did that announcement play initially and how's that developed throughout the week? Uh, well, it obviously went down spectacularly badly with the actually not very large number of people who uh, would be eligible to pay uh, the top rate of tax. Um, the, the, Tragically, the, sort of, the tax ban really that newspaper editors and newspaper yes, columnists exa- and Tory donors fall ex- into. Exactly. So the, the short-term problem Labour has was, you know, what was exposed by this is actually the extent to which the opinion-forming class, as you might call it, is disproportionately staffed with people who, guess what, are eligible to pay the top rate of tax. And they have perfectly reasonable or just rationalised objections to it about sending the wrong signals about supporting enterprise or that it doesn't really raise a huge amount of money. I mean, it's worth adding that um, yeah, the bedroom tax doesn't raise a huge amount of money and um, taking away the childcare element of the working tax credit also is bad for the economy. But um, mysteriously, they were much more relaxed about those measures. But I'm sort of parking that for a moment. Well, the other thing that I think gets forgotten is the fact that for nine of the years that Margaret Thatcher was in power, the top rate of tax was was 60p. And before that, it was it was 88p. You know, it was this is the idea that this is some ahistorically incredibly punitive tax rate is is slightly odd. Yes, and uh, I think the uh, as well the sort of the dispassionate criticism of the Labour move and the one that you get from people inside the Labour Party. Uh, a, a minority, but not an insignificant number, is that it falls into the category of just the sort of thing you might expect the Labour Party to do. And the problem that they have more widely in their, their offer on the economy uh, is sort of grabbing people's attention, surprising them. And and this old 
issue still of of persuading people that they wouldn't just come in and start spending money that in most people's eyes simply isn't there uh, and it, it was notable that the other big announcement in the speech that Ed Balls made last Saturday was that he was aiming he would aim to deliver a current budget surplus over the course of the next parliament which was a, a major gesture towards a sort of fiscal prudence and rigor uh, that was a sort of allowed to run overnight in a news cycle for a few hours before being blasted off the front pages by the the re- pledge to restore the 50p rate and it does sort of suggest that labor know they need to signal certain things on that front on the on the fiscal discipline um but they don't want to let that sort of resonate out there for too long because they've still got an eye on they've still got an eye on their own activists and their own left flank that go slightly berserk when it looks like they're dancing to Osborne's tune on fiscal policy. And is that because they also want to pick up disaffected lefty Lib Dems? Absolutely, and also I mean, but and but also ordinary people. I mean, this is the <laughs> important thing here that you know two thirds roughly of the population like this tax policy. Uh, they think it is entirely fair when everyone else has taken a massive hit that people who are earning £150,000, which is a huge amount of money. No one in this room owns more than £150,000. I doubt many people listening to this podcast earn more than £150,000. So you know what? Frankly, it's not sort of the wicked neo-Bolshevik politics of envy to say those guys can cough up too when everyone else has taken a hit. So no wonder it's popular politics. And the interesting thing is whether the Conservatives as they did with the Labour's pledge on on, um, cutting, on capping energy prices, have sort of leapt to a default position that really just puts them on the wrong side of public opinion on this, and then they c- complain that it's all nasty left populism. Um, well, you know, too bad. Sometimes political parties are going to do things that are popular. That's politics. And Caroline, do you agree with that? Were you surprised at the, the Tory reaction? Was it playing into Ed, Miliband, um, Ed Balls's kind of vicious little trap? I wasn't surprised by it at all, and I think for the reasons that Raf has just said, that it is seen as a sort of predictable thing that, oh, well, Labour would do that, and then the Tories and the kind of business lobby would respond as they have done. But I think there are... There is also this issue that we are, what, 15 months, roughly, from, from the general election, and that in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money, either for pe- 5p extra for people to pay, nor will it raise that much money. But we're kind of in this stagnant point in the political cycle where the tiniest blip either way, creates this kind of feedback loop in the media that it's very hard for Labour to kind of broadcast over. I think my favourite thing was, I think it was the Mail on Sunday's headline was civil, or maybe Telegraph, was civil war in the Labour Party, which was apparently caused by Lord Miners, who's a former Labour mm. minister from the government of all the Tans era, who is now apparently a one-man civil war. Yes, There are, they... actually, in fairness, there are, sorry to interrupt, Caroline, mm. there are people... On the on the Labour side, uh, the, the sort of the artists formerly known as Blairites, who now have to call themselves something else because <laughs> uh, no one wants to be known as the Blairite in the Labour Party anymore, uh, who are genuinely nervous about this, um, and they do think that, as I say, it's it's sort of of a piece with a general perception that that Labour doesn't really know how to go about the business of solving the deficit, doesn't really have a story to tell about how it delivers long-term prosperity, but it sure knows how to go after rich people's money, and that's kind of what the Labour Party does. And that is, if that is all that Labour is seen to be doing, then that is a problem for the brand, I think, ultimately. I'm interested as well, actually, in because we know that there's a kind of coming... Uh, recycle of the stuff about union funding for the Labour Party, there's a report at the moment um, and as they come up to the election is being seen as anti-business going to be a problem for Labour money wise do you reckon Raph? 
Well, ultimately, in terms of the next general election, the money's coming from the trade unions mm, to yeah. fight that campaign. That's that's clear. Uh, and that will be part of the negotiations over, over union reform. Is it a wider problem? I mean, a, a, someone on the Shadow Cabinet recently said to me, that Labour's relations with business are now about as bad as they were in the middle of the 1980s, and mm. that's not good. Uh, there are also people in the shadow cabinet who will insist that actually they, they can have a good working relationship with business. Um, it's just that no one wants to come out now because people like to be seen as non-partisan. I mean, the reality is you know, business will deal with whoever's in government. What they want is consistency, um, and they recognise that, that politics is politics. I mean, there are a lot of business people who very much don't want Britain to leave the European Union, don't even think there should be a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union, and think all the government's rhetoric on immigration is reactionary, un- illiberal and unhelpful. But you don't notice them writing letters to the Telegraph mm, saying, I... hey, Cameron, stop it with this mad UKIP-chasing mania. So it, ultimately, business will will sort of go with the flow and try and influence in whatever ways it sees That's appropriate. part of the reaction that I found really interesting, actually, is that it immediately was set up as it's Labour versus business, not Labour saying something that's a little bit unpopular, but if it should happen to come to pass, business will just get on with it. Yeah, and there are lots of business people, people who run small businesses, run their own enterprises, who simply don't pay themselves £150,000 no, exactly. a year. So either. it's irrelevant, yes. But I thought it was really fascinating if you looked at, you're talking about that EU point, the CBI said 8 out of 10 of their members don't want to leave the EU, they don't want, um, again, that's why the idea of it, even don't want a referendum because it creates this incredible tide of uncertainty about the single market. The same thing Stuart Rose said about migration, you know, they, they rely on migrant workers to, 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 in order to fuel their business growth. So why aren't Labour ever successfully landing that hit? That's a very good question. I mean, I've asked lots of people in the Labour Party, why is it that when they've got in theory, a story to tell about a new economic model that's very optimistic and about responsible capitalism uh, being open to the world, but also looking after, you know, boosting productivity by having happy, well-remunerated workers. Why can't they find some responsible capitalists, put them on a platform with Ed Miliband with his arm around them, and go, "This is what I'm. This is what I'm mm. talking about." Uh, and and the the answer is that I'd get is that well, the official line is, you know, well, obviously, you know, it's in between. The, the elections coming in a year, people don't want to be seen to be too partisan about it. I think the reality is they are struggling. They are struggling to find those people. Uh, and whether that's because not enough effort has gone in or because people really are still just a bit suspicious of the Ed Miliband proposition and don't necessarily want to hitch themselves to his wagon until they're pretty confident that the guy's going to end up being prime minister. I, I'm not sure. Which is odd because I think in Chukramuna they've got a business secretary, shadow business secretary, who is plausible, who can, you know, he's a former lawyer at Clifford Chance, he can certainly go out and talk in the language that business leaders understand. And he does that, and Ed Ball still is important as a sort of an ambassador to planet proper capitalism, um, <laughs> and uh, Liam Byrne now is um, is in the you know, shadow biz department looking at sort of skills and enterprise and has a remit also to make sure that there are some business people who recognise that Labour still has you know, cares what they think and, and cares about supporting them. Um, but as I say, it, it's sort of in the graphic equaliser of Labour's message, the bits that always get the <laughs> I dials... I think that's the most tendentious metaphor, yeah. The, 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 yeah. the dial always gets jacked up. Right, it's, okay. the, um, it's the one that does this, the sort of annoyed the notes on um, bashing business. Um, You're going to have to go away. I'm going to have to go and look at the Wikipedia page for Graphic Equalizer and find out how it works. So on that (laughs) note, we'll probably um, say thank you, Raph and Caroline. 
Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. This week's cover story, we're calling it the 7% problem. Why does the private school minority still dominate public life? And it's by David Kiniston, the renowned historian, and George Kiniston, a former teacher. One of the themes of the essay, David, is the silence of the left when it comes to addressing the dominance of those edu- educated at private school in public life. Mm. Yeah, it, the, the left has been largely silent on the issue. It's starting to change, I think. But there was a long period, the first eight or nine years, say, of, of, of new Labour in power, when there seemed to be barely a squeak from the left uh, over the larger issue of private education. There was a little bit over the question of charitable status, but in terms of the bigger picture, uh, really not uh, very much, certainly from, from, from the, the Labour Party. Uh, but it's broader than just Labour. It's It's to do also, I think, with the... Uh, left-leaning liberal intelligentsia, perhaps more generally. Uh, And two things, perhaps particular at play, that don't often get written about. Uh, One, I think, that often is that emotional commitment to state education, uh, particularly from people who themselves were state-educated, and the feeling that if one bangs on about the private school problem and and, and the dominance of private-educated uh, people in public life and so on, that is implicitly to denigrate the state system. Uh, I, I think it's a, sh- a shame. It's an understandable perception, uh, an understandable uh, reluctance, but I think it's a shame because I think the two uh, sectors, the, the private sector does directly impinge uh, upon the state sector. Uh, so there's that in play, I think. And and the other thing, which is seldom said, and I think needs to be said rather loudly, actually, uh, is that uh, we are in a very London-dominated culture as far as the, the media is concerned. There's been some interesting correspondence in The Guardian earlier this week about it, the, the Guardian, the feeling among some people that The Guardian has completely moved away, as it were, from its Manchester and provincial roots and so on. Um, and the fact is that many... Uh, left-leaning intelligentsia people in London do, often for understandable reasons, send their children to private schools and as a result feel neutered on the issue and unable to raise it uh, for fear of being called uh, hypocrites in particular. Uh, And if one's curious, one can go on YouTube and see the um, uh, uh, ongoing spats over the years between Toby Young and Polly Toynbee. So there's a sense, sense, um, David, of... of Unease, yes. embarrassment, even yes. Yes. about their own education. There, there, there's that too, and of course, there's, there's some larger considerations. There's, there's always the accusation of being accused of social engineering, uh, which is a favourite from the right over this issue. Although it seems to me that if you choose to spend money to give your child what, what almost certainly will be an advantage in life, if that isn't socio-economic engineering, I'm not sure what is. Uh, and indeed, the 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 the, the, the um. Uh, the USP, as it were, of, of, of private schools is, in effect, we give your children an advantage. It is blatant social engineering. So that particular phrase is, is, is irritating, but it's one to, which is always used by the right against the left in this, uh, in this argument. Uh, there's, of course, the, the obvious libertarian point. Uh, um, uh, a parent is free to choose to spend their money. Uh, how, how they choose to Yes, and indeed do. in your essay, um, and I'll come to you in a moment, George, as someone who's taught recently in, in a state school, but David, in, in the essay, you don't call for abolition of um, fee-paying private schools, but at the same time you say this is a moment of opportunity, not only for the left, but for all of us. I, I think it is. I, th- I, th- I, think, uh, I, I think they're starting to build up 
a critical mass of interest uh, in this issue. It's very interesting, in the late 50s, when uh, Labour was thinking about its education policy ahead of the 1959 election, it commissioned a poll, uh, uh, including of working-class parents, who simply uh, weren't that fussed about the issue of private education, uh, uh, gave the impression that if they ever came into some money, they sent their own children to private schools and believed it was simply rather odd for a party to get preoccupied with the issue. I think things are changing. I think education uh, is, is is moving more centre stage in, in all sorts of ways. And the very starting point for our essay is that actually it seems to be the right who's talking about education. We quote John Major, we quote Cameron himself, we even quote Nigel Farage, uh, uh, which is making the silence of the left uh, on this, in terms of constructive proposals, uh, all the more, all the more pointed. As for abolition, uh, I, 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 as 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 George said on the radio this morning, this isn't where one would start from the system we have now. But one does have to be realistic and see where and see and, and see where we are. Um, one one thing I think I would like to say uh, about this is that one could argue that ultimately the problem is not with the schools themselves, many of which are fine schools, uh, many of which provide a superb education. Uh, The problem is with the children they're educating, in the sense that these are uh, the great majority of them are already privileged children in terms of their background, in terms of their mm-hmm. cultural, social capital and so on. And that privilege is then drastically further entrenched and enhanced by them going to, 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 to private schools. So who, you know, the, the, that is, I think, one helpful way of looking at the question, who should these pr- private schools be educating? And it, and obviously I'm not the first person to, to, to come up with this point. And going back to the 1940s, there was the so-called uh, Flemingism, a Fleming committee during the war, uh, which suggested uh, 25%, up to 25% in some schools, uh, coming from outside. So you'd open, uh, you'd open, uh, the you'd, you'd o- open up. it up and Anthony Selden the, the, from, from within the, the independent sector has also proposed that and he would he would open it up not on a kind of like a kind of grammar school 11 plus basis but uh, on an across the board basis so it, was, it wasn't just you know middle already quite well off middle class children and, and, and so on uh, and I actually think that does have some some mileage to it whether it's compatible with the other constructive approach as opposed to the bulldozer approach uh, of more integration between the two systems I'm not sure but I think our larger point before perhaps we come to George and and, and some more specifics of the current debate is the really important point and why we really wrote the article is let's get this whole issue out on the table and let's get the politicians talking about it properly and in my view that should include Labour's shadow education secretary because if he's not talking about this issue we're we're, it's a pretty poor state of affairs. George you've recently um taught in a I I presume in a comprehensive? Yeah a secondary comprehensive in Birmingham. And you've uh, you co-authored this, what is a superb and wide-ranging essay. And as editor of the Statesman, I get a lot of um, pictures on education. I see a lot of pieces, and this is one of the best pieces I've read on education <laughs> in in many years. Do you have solutions to this problem, George, or is it more of a case of just opening it up for discussion? Definitely, that definitely that is right. That the bigger picture is the kind of acknowledgement that this is a problem. That the private sector. As good as it may be on its own terms, within its own four walls, as it were, 
does not operate in isolation. It does have a direct impact upon the state sector and upon upon everybody, really. Um, you've got two competing principles in play. One is the principle, the libertarian principle. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That as a consumer, you can spend your money how you want, and as a parent, you can educate your child how you want. So you've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, the principle that every child should have an even start. That no child has earned the money that pays for private education, that no child has earned the right to a better shot. Um, and those principles are currently pretty firmly in tension uh, and currently we say well you can spend your money and it doesn't matter that that completely skews the playing field so step one is the fact that it is a problem it should be on the table it should be debated and that labor frankly should stop being scared of the issue and engage constructively um why is it that why it is is it that the right um gove um toby young and others feel confident about speaking about these issues. Um, you mentioned even John Major, former Prime Minister, and Nigel Farage. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why is the right emboldened and the left so timid? It's, it's a really good question. You, you could take the very cynical view of kind of, you know, wanting surface change, wanting to neuter the issue. Uh, you know, Cameron's background is not something that works well for him politically, not something he's comfortable talking about. You could take a very cynical view. I think that would be wrong. I think there is a genuine belief that this is a problem. I think Cameron in in September 2011 summoned a lot of the private school heads to Downing Street. I think that's a genuine attempt at something constructive. I think when Gove talks about this, he means it. Yes, I I certainly feel that about Gove, actually. He genuinely Um, feels that social mobility is the kind of order of the day. I think he really believes in this stuff. Um, So I think the right is with good intentions. Um, With the left... One, it is complicated as an issue. It is not an easy argument to kind of make or to win. Certainly if you actually get into things beyond abolition, it gets quite complicated, really. It's not something you can pitch in 30 seconds and expect to clean up electorally. Um, But I think it's kind of discomfort, and I think it's a failure of nerve. And also you might argue a failure of imagination as well, that this could be part of a broader Mm. narrative about Mm. a more equal society. Mm. Um, I think also there's this, the, the, the 1945 myth is rather compelling. There's a sort of view we've certainly heard uh, that um, we had a moment in 1945. It was a unique moment, but perhaps because Clement Hatley was an old Haley Buren or for whatever mixture of reasons, it didn't happen. That was the golden moment. It's never going to come round again. Or, or was it we that they, to, they felt we, they had greater priorities in 45 rather than this is this came transforming up this, the education system. this came up this morning nhs yes, welfare yeah. system uh, i think that, that post-war that, recovery I, no i well there were some very mm. some very serious <laughs> stuff that government to deal with and in many ways it was an amazing government uh, I, I think actually even if it had been as it were higher on the agenda uh uh, uh atley who could be a very stubborn man uh was a very proud old Haley Buren. <laughs> you know, he, he, he wasn't going to go there. But it's definitely a question that's relevant right now. You're talking about a serious 
debate, a huge investment of political capital, if, if, if you like. I mean, you know, I suppose politicians ask the question, is it worth it, in a sense? Is it worth well, the, the, the argument from Gove and the right will be, well, leave the private schools alone. These are world-class institutions mm-hmm. and some of the greatest success stories in mm-hmm. British culture at the moment. Leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Let's transform and improve the state schools through yeah. the introduction yeah. of but academies, it's, But it's a very, so very old argument and we you know it has it's, yeah. it's a code yeah. for let's not talk about it it's yes. a code for let's do nothing yes. you could make yes. the state school unbelievably good and still there would be the desire to not touch the private sector mm. um because if it still confers an advantage people are still going to pay well, the money your essay has begun mm. a conversation which will continue thank mm. you both no, um, david kinniston and george kinniston joined by feminist campaigner Karen Criado Perez and we're going to talk about guess what feminism I'm going to start off by asking you about um, changes to stalking and domestic violence laws which I know that you've been involved with what's wrong with the law as it stands um well there's a few things that that are wrong with the law um I mean for a start we don't have a law that directly targets domestic violence um and that's a problem for two reasons first of all um it doesn't allow therefore for the pattern of behaviour to be picked up which is such a huge part of domestic violence. So domestic violence currently gets prosecuted under things like um, kidnapping, burglary, uh, battery, um, all these kinds of single incident things and often it will be an incident that perhaps on its own isn't really big enough to get the kind of prosecution that you need but when you compare it to you know when you when you look at it as a sort of campaign of terror really which is what it is for for most victims um then you know it all adds up into something much bigger and much more important um and and also the other thing is of course in in relation to that is the psychological element of domestic violence which actually a lot of the victims say is the worst part i mean you know which i think is very hard for people on the outside to understand because there is a feeling that Obviously, you would imagine that being hit is far worse than being psychologically yeah. controlled. But in one sense, I guess the bruises heal, but the fact that you are psychologically damaged is something that yeah. stays with you for years afterwards. I think it's an incredibly bizarre and juvenile attitude as a society that we've chosen to take. We're reducing it all to the playground. Not that I'm suggesting that psychological trauma in the playground isn't important. Of course it is, and it can last with people for a lifetime. But we have this bizarre attitude that because we have this place playtime song sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me that therefore that is true and actually it's complete rubbish sticks and stones may break your bones your bones will heal but your you psychologically your mind you may never be free of them and there are a lot of women that i've spoken to and they sort of say you know four or five years later they still find themselves looking over their shoulder or in fact they might still be being stalked by an ex-partner five years later because these people can be incredibly um, obsessive um and they don't just sort of let up and that that constant feeling of fear is is something i think is really hard to shake off there's a fantastic play actually um by a woman called Claire Moore who runs this uh, the Certain Curtain Theatre Company. Anyway, it's about domestic violence and it's specifically focused on this idea of this psychological jail that you're in and it's it's really trying to address the question that a lot of victims get asked or gets asked about victims is why didn't she leave? Because from the outside you look at it and just think, well, he's beating her, he's denying her money, he's calling her horrible names all the time, why doesn't she just walk out? And, you know, the answer to that question is because she can't because she's been ground down so much and often she has nowhere to go um, and and she's just too scared of what will happen if she leaves. Um, So I think 
really, for me, that's one of the big reasons that I want to address this, because I really want us to start having a grown-up debate in this society about the fact that just because it's on the inside of your head and you can't see an external scar, it doesn't mean that it's not hugely important and, in fact, can take over someone's life. And this is something, I guess, that applies to your own case and the abuse on Twitter, is that the classic comeback being, it's just words on a screen, Mm -hmm. no-one was ever going to act on these threats. And even taking aside the fact that, obviously, as a recipient, you absolutely have no idea whether or not people are going to act on these threats it's hard to make people understand that in some ways the threat itself is violence because it is designed to make you feel unsafe in the same way that street harassment isn't just someone giving you a lovely compliment about your legs it's designed to draw attention make you feel nervous in public space yeah yeah and i you know those the the experience over the, the the summer of the abuse was just um absolutely horrendous and um terrifying and and hugely scarring and i mean it has completely changed me as a person and I I really resent that every single day I resent how much it's changed me and how timid and scared and and sort of over emotional and all these things that I don't want to be and that prevent me from being an effective campaign all these things that it's made me um but are you reassured by the fact that you know you've had you and I spoke on a panel with the MP Stella Creasy when she was at um, the Shadow Home Office talking about the, maybe we would move around to, to having more of an idea about the impact on a victim. She made a very good comparison about um, being sent some a bunch of flowers, for example, to your home address, which seems on the outside like a lovely gesture. If it's your ex who's got a restraining order out on you and it's his way of letting you know that he knows where you live, that should be read completely differently. It's obviously very hard for the law to take that into account. Is there anything else that the justice system or the media can do more in terms of being able to communicate how, how victims feel, how this makes victims feel? Um, well, I suppose they could start by listening to victims more and broadcasting victims' voices more. I think that that's actually a huge problem, particularly in the criminal justice system, is it just feels like victims um, are completely irrelevant. And in many cases, they just become relegated to the the position of witness to their own abuse rather than feeling that someone is actually validating their experience I mean I you know when I think about the experience I've had with the criminal justice system and I what what I really really wasn't expecting actually was just the sense of huge relief when I read the judge's remarks about his understanding how the abuse had made me feel and that all the way through this I had felt continually that people weren't understanding, that I wasn't being believed, that I was continually having to justify why every time I spoke about it, it made me cry, and every time I thought about it, I felt sick, and that I could still see everything imprinted in my head. And just having someone write in black and white that this was a crime, it was a serious one, we understand the psychological impact, um, that makes such a difference to victims, and, and I think that that is, is something that just gets missed a lot, is the importance of having your experience validated because so often as a victim particularly one of a misogynistic sexually violent um crime against women really it 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 does feel really stacked against you because of this perpetual feeling as a woman but particularly in in this culture that we live in of of not believing women about sexual crimes and sexual slights um i think that what your case made me understand was that if somebody with you know the advantages that you have had that trouble being believed, then how much more I'm worried am I about the way that the justice system treats, for example, child victims mm. um, or victims of historic sex abuse? You know, men who are victims of sexual assault, I know, have their own kind of particular feelings of shame often about that because it's you know they they think someone like me shouldn't be mm-hmm. a victim. 
Um, and I think it, I agree with you that the, something like Mumsnet's campaign, you know, the I Believe Her campaign, was, was really important for that reason, this idea that there should be a presumption of I will hear you make your case, I will not instantly dismiss you because I instantly dismissed allegations like this. Um, but to move on to more widely to talking about feminism, I wanted to talk to you about um, the idea of representation in the media because it's something that, you know, you talk about a lot on Twitter, I talk about a lot on Twitter. It's always, there's a slight undertone of it's not a, a really big issue. Why are you complaining about, you know, uh, there only being one woman nominated for this Oscar or that Oscar when there's, you know, there's other things going on? Why do you think the representation of women in the media matters? Um, because media is really our prime public space. I mean, you can go and stand on Speaker's Corner, but it's not really going to have this massive impact on society. Um, and there is still this sense that women don't belong in the public space. And you can see that because every single time a woman steps into it and speaks up, she gets hit with a torrent of abuse. Um, so for that reason, the fact that a certain sector of society find it really troubling and challenging. That's one of the reasons I think it's really important because until it stops being this scary, bizarre thing that we need to somehow stamp out, um, it it demonstrates how important it is to a lot of sexist people. I think the other reason, though, um, is that the media in particular set the terms of debate and they have a huge impact on you know what we consider to be an important topic. And you just have to look at the type of coverage that, that we have in, in most newspapers and what it's about. So, for example, um, I think it's 78%, no, 78% of lead stories are written by men and 84% are about men or have men as the prime topic. And if our focus as a society is to such a huge extent about men, rather than about women, who are, after all, 50% of the population. 51%, Sorry, apologies, 51% of the population. Um, You know, that's massively skewing what we consider to be important topics and what we are, what therefore politicians are thinking about when they're forming policies. So it's not really... I think people make the mistake of when people talk about representation of thinking we're just thinking about that woman who's going to be on that panel or that woman who's going to get the Oscar or that woman who's going to be the subject of this newspaper article or that woman who's going to write the newspaper article. It's not at all. It's about setting the terms of debate which affects all women. So, for example, things like forced marriage and FGM, which are always the things that get thrown at, you know, privileged feminists that you're not talking about this enough, you only care about, you know, your newspaper column. Actually having more women making these decisions, making these policies, writing these articles, inevitably means that you have more of a female perspective, more female issues are spoken about, and therefore things start to change for all women. I have to say, I have a personal animus against, I tweeted this about, I often find that whatever you write about, and it's a feminist subject that's not FGM, you have FGM thrown it, why aren't you talking about FGM? Bizarrely, when you, you know, we've had Nim Ali on this podcast for Leila Hussain, also Daughters of Eve, which is a fantastic anti-FGM campaigning organisation. Mysteriously, when you do talk about that, the tumbleweed mm. rolls across your feed. And it does seem to exist in this sort of strange kind of space that it's used as a rebuke, but it's not deemed to be interesting as itself. And that really annoys me because yeah. FGM is a, such an important Well, issue. exactly. It's used as a stick to beat feminists when actually we should just be talking about it and trying to deal with it. Because, you know, so often... It's just become a meme in 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 a way, which is incredibly troubling for something that's so important. Yeah, it's become what and... kind of the war in Iraq was to Guardian comment boards in the 2000s. It was like whatever the Guardian article was, it was always, why are you talking about this when we're at war in Iraq? Which is, you know, often a very valid point, but mm. it doesn't really ever advance the debate about either of the topics at hand. 
Um, finally, as your campaign to get a woman on the banknote ended up with Jane Austen getting on the banknote, mm-hmm. favourite character in Pride and Prejudice? Oh! Uh... <laughs> favourite character in Pride and Prejudice? Well... I'm going to go Mr. Bennett. I'm going... I know... I've got a big love for Lizzie, but... Mr. It, Bennett? It's got to be Mr. Interesting. Bennett. Interesting. If any young gentlemen come for Kitty or Lydia, tell them I am quite at leisure. <laughs> um, I would probably go for Lizzie, just because, you know, Mr. Bennett, while I do love him, he is sexist towards his wife. Um, and I, I can't really forgive him for that, because obviously Mrs. Bennett is awful... Um, but she's a product of, our t- of her time. And that's really what I really love about Austen, why I get so angry when people denigrate her and just call her chicklet and she's just about rich women finding rich husbands. No, she isn't. You know, she's a hugely sensitive and nuanced cultural cri- critic. And, um, and I think actually it's, it's sexism that people don't recognise that. It's because she's a woman. And so they think, oh, well, it's just surface level. And it really is just this nice little story that it seems to be. And they completely miss all the really barbed satire that's running on underneath it and her strong strong critique of women's social roles and I think Mrs Bennett is a really interesting representation of that because she's so much represented as completely trapped by what was expected of her and her life and being moulded in a way by Mr Bennett as, as he sort of set her up as his antagonist and in some ways he's almost created her um Yes, my well, I have great respect for your nerves. They've been my companions these 20 years at least. Yeah. There is a feeling that they've both got themselves into a, a rut where he is the the nagged and she is the nagger. And, then and that's bit. just, you know, isn't that, you know, women and men's roles represented at large across the media? When I look at my parents and I grew up, you know, my mum is not like Mrs Bennett. But there was that kind of dynamic and I, that I looked at them and I didn't want to be my mum because she was, you know, the naggy, you know, neurotic, whatever that women are. And my dad was this really impressive and calm and he was funny, but he would never get over emotional. And so I grew up as a girl, you know, rejecting anything that was to do with the feminine because I looked at my dad and that's, you know, that's what you're meant to be. And that's that's Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett. And so I can't forgive Mr. Bennett for what he did to Mrs. Bennett, I'm afraid. It also makes me think <laughs> of the the really killer line in Friends, which again, I will defend as a social commentary to my dying day, um, where Rachel, Jennifer Anderson's mum, said to her, you didn't marry your Barry, honey, I married mine. Mm. And the whole idea that she thinks, she looks at her parents' marriage and she thinks they've had this perfect marriage, but no, her mum made the compromise mm. that she was strong enough to reject. But had she lived at the time that her mum did and not had the pill and not had all the advantages that she had, would she have been any stronger to make that choice? On which incredibly <laughs> digressive digression, I would say thank you very much, Caroline, for coming thank in. You. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. <laughs>